This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now today, uh, we're going to be pretty heavy in the subject of what we're talking about. So I, I just kind of planned initially to lead off with some dad jokes. Is that okay? Everybody okay with laughing a, f- a little bit? What, what did the sheep say to Mary when they arrived at the manger? Fleece Navidad. That's so bad. And I feel so weird every time I do that. Anyway, I do. But that was their idea. All right. Here's another, I don't, did y'all hear about Santa last year? Santa's reindeer got sick in the Midwest, upper Midwest last year. It was a very traumatic experience. They weren't able to fly. And so actually, um, a wiener dog showed up to the rescue. You know, how many of y'all have a wiener, wiener dog showed up to the rescue? They actually hooked to the wiener dog. Wiener dog pulled them through the snow. They were dash hound through the snow. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. All right, here's another one. This is my personal favorite for today. Um, I was actually, I have a friend who's a pirate. I was helping him uh, kind of do his, uh, his Christmas list this year. And I noticed that he had on his Christmas list, he had a new peg leg. It wasn't the main wish, the main thing that he wanted for Christmas. It was just a stocking stuffer. <laughs> That's so bad. That's so bad. All right, all right, moving on, moving on. The text we're in today comes out of the book of Revelations, uh, really the revelations, the prophetic revelations of the Apostle John, John who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, This is the only uh, prophetic book in the New Testament, while the Old Testament has uh, gobs of them. This is the lone one in the New Testament. And John's revelation, what it does is it actually gives us window-like prophetic glimpses into things that have happened and things that will happen in the future. It's, it's as if, you know, have you ever been on a plane and you're, you're reading and you look out the window and you see mountains and you read a little bit and then you look out and you see a river and then you look out and you look, get back to reading and then you look out and you see a city. You, you get that glimpse, just a window. That's what John gets. And then I, and, and as you read through Revelations, you'll hear, and then I saw, and then I saw. And the, the passage that we're actually looking at is a prophetic window into Christmas. Now, the idea of it being prophetic means that John sees something in Christmas that we don't see naturally. So when we read the Gospels, go through Luke chapter 2 and you know, read the accounts of, of Jesus' birth. What we're seeing is a historical record of what happened. John is seeing something in this version that is prophetic in nature. He's seeing what God sees and what God wants to show us about what happened. And so we're going to read through this passage, Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand as we read through the Word of God today? Verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, 
a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that in your word, there's life, there's help, there's healing. And Father, we also know that there's correction and conviction. And so as we pause today out of what is for everybody in this room, just busy lives, and we peer into your word, would you speak to us clearly? Convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged so that we might endeavor to take a next step. God, do this for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Touch your neighbor while you're taking a seat and say, this is going to be weird. <laughs> now look it back and say, well, we're just getting started. We love weird around here. I'm just <laughs> I want to go back through the opening verses, if you would. Uh, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. As we went through this particular section of this text last week, we identified the woman as Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it denotes that she's clothed with the sun and the moon, which means that she's a representation of, of man, of humanity, that in dominion we rule and reign. God gave us this creation to rule and reign over, and she represents that, but the crown with 12 stars would denote that she is connected to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is not just a human. This is a human that represents somebody from the family of God. And as we identified her as Mary, she is pregnant to give birth to the Savior of the world, Jesus. Some scholars would assert it's not just Mary, that it's Israel who has been pregnant with the promise that God is going to deliver a deliverer. But that's not all that John sees. In verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Now that, just to be honest and upfront, that's weird. Okay? But it's not incoherent with Scripture. The color red. For ancient texts, red represents violence, the color of blood. And as a matter of fact, what's interesting is if you know the, the psychology of colors, red is agitating. It's upsetting. While blue is calming, red is the opposite of that. And this dragon is red, representing violence. Seven heads in ancient literature mythical creatures that had more than one head represented simply that they were hard to kill. Chop off this head, it still lives. To have seven heads though for the Apostle John, seven seems to be the number of completion. And so seven heads would represent the fact that we, though we might attack it, we cannot kill it. 
10 horns, horns representing strength. There are more horns than heads, so there is a lot of strength in this creature. And seven crowns representing, as many scholars would say, stolen authority, stolen power. Now, while this is odd, admittedly, it is not the only place in Scripture that this appears. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees iterations of the enemy over and over again. And the very same vision comes to Daniel in exile in Babylon. In the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 13, when John begins to describe the beast, the incarnation of the enemy in the end times, it's the exact same description. John is pointing us this dragon is a representation of the enemy. The enemy of your soul, though he has many different names in Scripture, the Satan, the devil, is your enemy. And then we see in the next verse, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who's about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. There's a, a little debate about that first part, the third of the stars swept out of the sky. There's extra biblical texts that suggest that there was a rebellion in heaven. And Lucifer, one of the three created archangels, takes a third of the angels with him. But many scholars would just simply point that what John's saying is look at how strong he is. That only a flick of his tail and a third of the stars fall. And he hovers in front of the woman with the simple plan that I want to devour her child. It's been Satan's plan since the beginning to destroy everything that God wants to give life to. John chapter 10 says this. This is Jesus speaking. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come. Notice that language. I have come. Isn't that the message of Christmas? That Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to us. The unique claim of the Christian faith that we don't have to go to God, that God instead came to us to make a way that we can come to Him. I have come, go back please. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's a thief that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, no, here I have come that you may have life. Jesus came to us at Christmas and it was a part of a grand war that we cannot see. This war that has raged around us since the moment we were first conceived and given birth to. And I want to make a few observations about that today as we get started. Number one, we need to live like we have a real enemy that's really trying to hurt us. For so many of us, this is difficult, but it's absolutely necessary that we live in life in such a way that reflects this reality that we have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy every good thing that God wants to give life to in us. I mean, this is not just some playful red dragon in a blow-up costume. 
This is absolutely life-threatening, and the message of Scripture is not that we ignore that, but that we live like that's true. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Those two words being very important. Be alert. To be alert for something is to be looking for something. Now notice, this is not, I'm not looking to blame the enemy. The old, the devil made me do it thing. That's not what this is about. This is about trying to understand the schemes of the enemy. I'm alert and I'm of sober mind, which means I'm not confused. I'm not drunk on the world. I'm soberly looking for what the enemy's doing in my life. Let me just ask you this question. Tomorrow afternoon, the mail runs. You come home from work and you go to the mailbox. You get the mail out and there's a handwritten letter. No return address. Because you know, those are the handwritten. That's the only ones we open, right? The other ones just get thrown into a stack. And we open it up. You start reading that letter. I know where you live. I know the way you drive to work every morning. I know when you go to the grocery store. I know what you like to do for fun. I know what you fight your husband about. I know what you're struggling with with your kids. And I am going to kill you. If you got that letter, would you live differently? Would you start thinking about what's happening around you? Start analyzing the events of your life. Start thinking more carefully about what you actually do. If you got a letter like that and it was addressed to your spouse, would you start trying to help to urge them you need to live differently if you got one of those that was addressed to one of your children would you start parenting them differently no you will stay you will how much more should we do that when we actually have a letter like that that tells you that you have an enemy that wants to take you out and yet for many of us it's just some vague idea that represents yeah I don't want to go to hell I want to go to heaven And obviously, that's where the devil's going to be. And that's where he wants me to be. It's not that it literally matters today. Number two, your enemy, the devil, wants to steal and kill and destroy everything Jesus has paid for you to have. Jesus was payment in full for you and for all that God wants to give you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, You were bought with a price. What was that price? What did God pay to buy you? He paid the price of His Son. Jesus was sufficient. The price that He paid was sufficient to cover the debt of my sin, and to pay for everything that God wants me to have. It's already paid. That's why Jesus says, I came that they may have life 
and have it to the fullest, the only way you find authentic life is in Jesus Christ. Every other manifestation of life is just simply a lie that's not true. It will leave you empty and broken. Life is found in Jesus. But Jesus clearly articulates there's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And for too many of us, we think about that as like, yeah, my eternity, right? So I, I don't go to heaven. But that matters today. Let me give you three ways that it matters today. Number one, the enemy wants to steal your joy by tempting you to live through comparison rather than surrender and obedience. The only way to live in a way that honors God is to live through surrender to God and obedience to God. But the enemy will tempt you to live in other ways. And one of those ways is by comparison. I'm not doing as good as they are. Our marriage isn't as good. We don't have the kind of kids they have. My kids aren't making those kind of grades. I don't have that job. I haven't got that promotion yet. We don't have that other house. Whatever it is. And if you live that way, inevitably what's going to happen is you're not going to find joy in what God's blessed you with where you're at. The enemy wants to steal your joy. I've said this all day. But what the world does not need is more people who are professing Christians who don't have joy. There are too many people out there who are professing Christians who are just filled with bitterness, filled with hate, filled with doubt, filled with fear. That's not the kind of people that God created us to be. Galatians chapter 5 gives us a list of what God produces in us when we're surrendered to Him. And one of those things is joy. And the world needs more people who are filled with joy, who follow Jesus and walk into rooms and change the climate and the temperature of those rooms simply by overflowing joy. But you have an enemy who wants to steal that joy. You have an enemy that wants to kill your time. There are three gifts that we really get from God. We can never make them happen. They're gifts from Him. We just get to manage them. Our time, our talent, and our treasure. Right? We manage our time by making sure that there's time for God and time to serve others. We manage our talent By saying, God, whatever talent you've invested in me, I will invest it into the kingdom of God. And then we manage our treasure by mirroring the character and nature of God and being generous ourselves. But you have an enemy that wants to kill your time by tempting you to worry about things you cannot control. You ever been there? Just consumed with worry. Just worst case scenario, this is going to ha- it's, it's, it's only to find out it doesn't happen. A study released last year said that over 80% of the things that we worry about never even happen in any instance. Like any sort of incarnation, they don't even happen. And yet we spend all this time wasting it in fear, in worry, and anxiety over something that's never even going to happen. And that's not the only way we waste time. We waste time just scrolling, looking for the next good laugh, binging a show that doesn't mean anything to our soul. And I'm not against, I'm not against entertainment, but how many of us 
say when it comes to the most important things in our life, I'm just so busy, I have a hard time. But then we waste our time. The enemy wants to kill your time. It's not just what, you have an enemy who's tempting to try to kill your time. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy wants to destroy your relationships by tempting you to make everything selfishly about yourself. It's hard to have a relationship with somebody who makes everything about them. It's impossible to have a healthy relationship with somebody who's selfish. The enemy's going to tempt you to do that. And if you live that way, all you're going to do is destroy your relationships. And relationships are gifts. They're good things. Friendships, marriages, our relationship with our kids. But selfishness and pride will destroy all of them. The enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy. And that matters to your life right now. But Jesus appears at Christmas to destroy what the enemy is doing to us. And oh, I love that word destroy. Not just to give us another option. To destroy the works of the enemy. I mean, Christmas was a baby in a manger. It surely was. It was shepherds and wise men. It was all of that, but it was so much more. And the more that it was, this glimpse that John gets in Revelation chapter 12, this unseen war that is beginning to move towards a very pivotal moment in that war, this is so much more, and it matters to our lives today. As a matter of fact, think about this. The same guy who gets that vision writes in 1 John chapter 3, the reason, look at this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Isn't that Christmas? The appearance of the Son of God. And John says, no, this is why. He showed up to destroy what the enemy was doing to our lives. That's the message of Christmas. And it's been really for us, it's been embedded in messages we've heard forever. Oh, holy night, this Christmas carol. Look at the lyrics of this song. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Just pining, just waiting. Lost in sin and error till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. The truth is we feel that reality. We feel it in the world when we look around and we see the evil and the war and we see all that is lost and broken, but we feel it in our own hearts. Under the weight of our sin and struggle, we were lost in an unseen war to an unseen enemy that was bigger than we are. But Christmas changes it. I just want to give you three simple observations on that. Number one, the birth of Christ sets the course for the defeat of our enemy in sin. When you come to see that Christmas is a part of an unseen war, what we start to see is that God makes a vital, important move in this moment when He sends His Son, Jesus, 
born to live a sinless life, a life that you or I could not live, and then to die in our place. From birth, from the very beginning, it was God's plan, God's intention to give up His Son as a sacrifice for our benefit. Jesus was born to die. That little baby in the manger was born to live a, a sinless life and then to die the death that we were meant to die on the cross. And just to be reminded today, there is no cross without Christmas. And I don't know about you, but I need the cross. Because I know who I am. Incapable of paying the penalty for what I've done. Incapable of earning what God has called me to. I need the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the restoration of my relationship with God. And some of y'all might think, but well, that just sounds foolish. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that phrase, who are being saved, meaning that salvation wasn't some moment that I bowed my knee and said a prayer. I am being saved. It is present perfect, acting, happening right now. I am being saved. And the cross the power of God for that in my life. I need the cross. And there is no cross without Christmas. It sets the course towards the enemy's defeat and sin's defeat. And I need you to hear this. As a Christ follower in this unseen war, we fight from victory, not for victory. Your victory is not secured by how good you are, how perfect you are. You are not struggling under an attack because you've been bad. Uh, you might be being disciplined by the Lord. The Bible says that He disciplines those that He loves, though. We're in this war, but we're not fighting to try to earn our victory. We're fighting from victory. We know how this all works out. In the end, God wins. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to put this reality of this unseen war into our perspective and be afraid. And so many of us, I believe this is why we don't. Because it's fearful to think I have an enemy that I can't see. But we don't have to be afraid. The Bible says over 300 times that we don't have to be afraid. And almost always it looks something like this. This is my favorite iteration of it. Isaiah 41. Look at this verse. Do not fear, for I am with you. That is more often than not the reason to not be afraid. God is with us. And I love this. Because this verse shows us what it means for Him to be our God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. I don't know about y'all, but I need God to show up sometimes and just be a help to me. I, don't rem I remember a couple months ago sitting on my front porch and it was early in the morning and I was praying and I had a whole list of things that I was praying, God, I need your help here and I need your help here. And I was just a little overwhelmed by the fact that all that I was praying was, God, I need your help. And I almost took a second 
to just stop and then I heard the voice of God. I want to help you. I've never looked at my kids when they were sincerely in trouble and needed help and not wanted to help them. But how much more does our perfect heavenly father want to be there to help us? And the way he does is he's with us. But you know what's amazing? Something shifted in the New Testament. Jesus said, I must go so that I can send the Holy Spirit. Colossians says, now it's Christ in us that it's the hope of glory. And look at what 2 Timothy says. The Spirit God gave us, the Spirit that's in me, does not make me timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The deposit of God in my heart takes away my fear because not only now is God with me, God is in me and I don't have to be afraid. Which means I need you to hear this. If you're struggling with fear, one of the questions you might want to ask is not about the enemy, but about your relationship with your Savior. Am I afraid? Because I have not really surrendered everything to Him. And I'm trusting my own self and my own way. And I want to tell you, if you're living that way, I'd be afraid. I want to make this super simple. Your relationship with God is not defined by your acknowledgement of His existence or your sentiment towards Him. Just because you say, that there's a God, or you say, I love Jesus. That doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. Your relationship with God is defined by your surrender to Him and your obedience in following Him. Please hear me. Why is this important in this spiritual war? Number three, you are most powerful against the schemes of the enemy when you are most surrendered to God. And some of you are getting it handed to you. And the reason you are is that area in your life remains unsurrendered to God. But there's victory. We fight not for victory, from victory. Notice this verse out of 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a promise. I need you to hear this. This is a promise. Thanks be to God. He gives us victory. But notice what it says. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not my friend. Not my mentor. The guy I like. No, my Lord. I have surrendered to Him. And because I've surrendered to Him, God gives me victory. There's a simple truth and I need to make sure this is clear for Jesus to be the Lord of something in our life we need to have surrendered it to him for him to be the Lord of your finances you need to have surrendered your finances to him for him to be the Lord of your marriage you need to have surrendered your marriage for him to be the Lord of your emotions you need to have surrendered your emotions for him to be the Lord of your health you need to have surrendered your health for him to be the Lord of your kids you need to have surrendered your kids for him to be the Lord of your family you need to have surrendered your family for Jesus Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you need to have surrendered your life to Him. And the thing is, the world looks at that word surrender, and all they see is defeat, but 
listen to what I'm about to say. All eyes looking up here real quick. This enemy is bigger than you. It's bigger than you, but he's not bigger than God. And the only pathway to victory is through your surrender to God because he's the one who holds your victory. The only pathway to victory in your heart, in your emotions, in your finances, in your marriage, in your life. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.